Uh, last week we, we, we began a series in the book of Deuteronomy, and this is a series that's going to last us uh, multiple years. Um, and Pastor Michael and Pastor John and I are looking forward to, to exploring it and to mining the riches of it in the coming year and next, this year two and year three and however long this is going to take us. We're excited for that. So um, to set us up, Deuteronomy is the final book in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch are the five books of the, the first five books of the Old Testament. And at this point in the story, the Israelites have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert and they've experienced the power of God. They have seen and witnessed miracles as they've made their journey in the desert and, and to the, toward the promised land. And also along the way, as we read through the Bible, we read that they have failed to do what God has called them to do over and over and over. And yet God has remained faithful to them. And Deuteronomy is a collection of Moses' speeches or his sermons to the Israelites as they look forward to the promised land. So this is what we're going to read today. This is uh, a portion of the first speech to the Israelites. This is in your bulletin or if you're following online, it's on your screen. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are, and bless you, as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. This is the word of God. So as you may have noticed, the passage that we just read seems to be merely appointing men. It's about appointing men to manage the people. And I was talking to David earlier this week, and um, we we're talking about what songs are you going to sing um, on Sunday morning? Um, I asked him, do you know of any songs about delegation and organizational management? Because I'm not sure what this text is talking about. Um, because that, that, that's what it seems like. Uh, this, this passage is, is, it seems like some flyover passage in the Bible. Um, it's something that we just have to get through in order to get to the stuff that really matters in the book. And, and maybe today could just be a talk about organizational principles. I've been to uh, church services where they talk about business principles, and that was the bulk of the message. Um, but fortunately, this passage is much more than that. And this ma- passage matters to us because we, like the Israelites, are God's people. And like the Israelites, we've been rescued from slavery. Like them, we are in a community. Like them, we are bound for the promised land. And we believe, we believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable, profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
so that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is what the New Testament says. All of Scripture does that for us. And even in this passage, there are reverberations of the gospel. So today I want us to see um, how and why God provides structure to the community that he calls us to. And to do that, we have three points. This is in your bulletin. Uh, The necessity of organization, number one. Number two, what this passage says about life and community. And number three, the basis of the command to appoint leaders. So our first point, the necessity of organization. Um, This is probably the the least uh, compelling sermon point I've ever had, the necessity of organization. Um, So I, I lived in Southern California for four years when I was attending seminary. And I was around a lot of churches. And if you're familiar with Southern California, you know that the religious landscape is a bit different than it is here in the Bay Area. There are churches everywhere. They're all over the place. And there are big churches, there are small churches, there are mega churches. And a mega church is a church that has 2,000 people or more. This is um, how they define it. Uh, 2,000 or more attendees every week. And I did some research. There are 200 mega churches in California. And of these 200 churches, the majority of them are in Southern California. And I, I saw, I, I went to school with a lot of classmates that attended or served in mega churches. And the church that I served in um, was a small church, um, but it was started by someone who came out of one of these mega churches. And this mega church, from the 1960s to the 1980s, it was one of the most well-known churches in America. And it was started by by a man that had New York Times bestsellers. He was on radio programs, and he had a television show that reached um, 1.3 million people at the peak of its popularity. And because this was one of my classmates that came from this church, um, I visited him a few times at this at this church campus while I was thinking about whether or not I want to serve with this guy. And I and uh, he showed me around the campus, and it's this crazy large campus with beautiful buildings and structures. And um, he would tell me all these little factoids about this church. Um, one of them was each month they spent $100,000 of their budget for climate control, for the air conditioning. Um, that's the type of church this was. And he would take me through the different buildings, and he took me to this one room where there was a statue of the pastor of this church while he was still alive, a life-size statue. And now this was a guy who was super well-known. Um, he if, if I told you his name, you probably would, might, if you're older, you might recognize the name. Um, but even then, I remember thinking, this dude is still alive, and it's kind of tacky that there's a statue of him, a lifetime statue of him in this church. And um, by the way, if IGC ever gets to the point where we even consider having a statue of the pastors, then I will tell you, please leave this church immediately. <laughs> Um, and, and this is uh, just a small example of the type of culture in some corners of the religious landscape of the West. And I don't know if you're ever going to find something as um, unique as that in, in a church that you visit. Um, but nevertheless, there is a more subtle form that we've gotten used to. We have entire churches built around one person. I, I could ask you, just think of some, some churches that you know. You could probably name some well-known pastors. And you probably know more about this pastor than you do about what this church does. 
And my, 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 my point is not to critique uh, pastors of large churches. I myself have benefited from uh, the work of these pastors of mega churches, and I'm thankful for the work that they do. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that God has built up their church in that way because they do amazing work. Um, I'm not saying that large churches are the way they are because these pastors want to make a name for themselves, although that might be the case for some churches. Um, but, but we often look to the most prominent leaders of an organization to single-handedly sustain and uphold and build up an organization. Uh, we, we, we focus on one person. And I want us to think about what our expectations are of the leaders whenever we think about our own community, whatever we belong to, whether it be IGC or some other church. Ask yourself, do you look to leaders to have their hands in every matter of the church? Do you expect them to maintain a rich and robust relationship with every church member? Are you disappointed that they're not highly competent in every matter related to the church? As we look at our first point, I want us to give us three reasons why Moses, he appointed leaders for for Israel, why there was a specific way for them to be ordered, and why the same should be true of the church. Why the idea of perhaps a really well-known pastor that has statues of himself and has people adoring him, why that may not be what God wants for his people. So some reasons why Moses appointed leaders for the church. I have three. Um, The first is this, that no one person can bear the weight of sustaining a community. So Moses knew that even though he was called by God, he had a... God, God presented himself as a burning bush to Moses. He spoke to Moses. And you would think that's pretty high qualification for me to be, do what God has called me to do. Even though Moses encountered God in that way, he knew that he could not do it himself. Uh, the parallel passage to, to, to today's passage is Exodus 18. And you might remember this. His father-in-law, uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, he, he advises Moses... He tells him, Moses, you can't carry out the task of leading the Israelites on your own. Because Jethro, he's older and he knows that the task of leadership to be a general and a judge and to be a a leader that provides direction, this is too much for any one person. So he has to delegate the tasks to others in the community. And God's design for community is that every member will exercise his or her gifts in that community. It's not that one or a few people do everything, but that everyone contributes to the life of the community. You might be aware of the 80-20 rule, and this is um, something that they talk about in, in books. Um, the principle is this, that in most organizations, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's the 80-20 rule. Um, But that shouldn't be the case, especially in the church. Especially in the church, 100% of the work should be done by 100% of the people. And this is such an important thing for us to consider. And we'll talk about it a little bit more in our next point. But that's the first reason, because no one person can bear the weight of sustaining a community. Number two, uh, the second reason why the tasks were delegated is this so that no one man can take credit for the success of the community. The church exists for the glory of God alone. 
The church exists for the glory of God alone. No one can use a ministry to make a name for himself. No one can use the church as a showcase for his or her abilities. If you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, how does God work in the church? God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is lowly and despised to carry out the work in the church so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. And when Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians, he's saying this, that the message of the gospel is far more important than the people proclaiming it. He's saying that the skill sets, that the personality traits that are assets in the rest of the world, these can be at times liabilities in the church. Because people start looking at their leaders, they say, that leader is so visionary, that leader is so charismatic and so compelling and he's so competent, he's so good at what he does. I'm in awe of this person. Is that how it's supposed to be in the church? The church should be a showcase of man's weakness and the power of God. 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are jars of clay. We are earthen vessels that are easily cracked, easily broken. And God entrusts us with his message. And here's this principle from 1 Peter 4. Let whoever serves do it as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Why do we do the things that we do? And by what strength do we rely on? And this is the second reason why this type of organization is necessary, so that God and God alone will get the glory. And the third reason why this type of organization is necessary, it's necessary because this is the means by which the heart of God is reflected. This is the mean by which the heart of God is reflected. Look at the passage. Verse 15 Moses appoints qualified men to oversee smaller groups of people. There's an order that's established in this community so that people can thrive, so that people can function, so that there can be uh, the, the type of structure and order that God wants for his people. There's another principle in 1 Corinthians 14 that, that tells us um, that God is not the God of confusion, or in the NIV it says that God is not the God of disorder, but of peace. And the same way that there's order in the universe, that, th- that there's order to physics and to mathematics and to chemistry and biology, there's an order to creation in the same way there's to be an order to community. In verses 16 and 17, there's the appointment of judges for a specific reason. God says, I want judges that are fair and equitable because they will reflect my heart. God cares about justice. We've been hearing a lot about that the past few weeks. God cares about equity among the people. And God tells Moses, delegate the tasks so that this community will reflect my values. 
So these are the reasons why God calls a community to be organized. Our second point, life in community. So the Israelites, they were rescued for a purpose. Uh, The men and women, they were called together with all their different temperaments, with all their different skill sets, all their different interests. They were brought together to glorify Yahweh. And if you remember some of the story of the Old Testament, God calls Israel to be a light to the surrounding nations. He calls Israel to be a nation that is unique, one whose God is different from the gods of the nations. When people look at at Israel, he wants them to know that Yahweh is completely different. He's holy, he's righteous, he's powerful, he's strong. He demands loyalty and devotion. This is why God called Israel to glorify himself. And this is true of the church as well. First Peter 2, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous lights. We are like the Israelites. And as we look at this passage in Deuteronomy, we see that this passage teaches us some things about life in the community and what it should look like. A moment ago, I mentioned that no one person, not even a small group of highly skilled people, can bear the weight of sustaining a community. This was true of the Israelites, and it's true of the church. In Deuteronomy, the roles are identified. There are to be commanders of smaller groups of people. And then there are judges to settle conflicts. And even though we just have a couple examples of the roles that people played in the community, I think this speaks to the principles for us today in our community. It means that we are to be arranged in a way that that all the members use their giftings for the sake of community. Our call to worship today was from 1 Corinthians 12, this passage that Pastor John took us through. And it says that we are all members of a single body. We're all one, and we all play a different role in the body. We have eyes and fingers and spleens and toes and kidneys. And God has put together the human body in a way that works in concert, in unity. And this is God's intention for our church. And this could be a whole sermon series. Um, There's so much we can say about this. And I'll I'll just keep this point really short. But I want to ask you a few questions for you to consider as you think about your place in this community or whatever community that you're a part of. Some questions for us to consider. What are your gifts? What are the things that you care about? How are you building up the body of Christ with these things? What are you doing to help the church carry out its mission to make disciples of Jesus? Are you taking ownership of your home church? Or do you just assume that someone else is going to do what needs to be done? Do you care enough to do something about the complaints that you have? 
How would you answer these questions? The people that Moses chose, they had giftings, they had skill sets that they used for the sake of their community. They made themselves available, they carried out their work. And if you're a part of this church, if you're a part of this church, then it's your responsibility to use your gifts and talents for the sake of your family here. It's your responsibility to use your time and your resources for the good of this church so that we can make disciples. And this is what we as members need to think about. We need to understand the role that we play, what God expects of us as we call ourselves members of this church. And not just us, but we need to think about the role that the leaders play. The passage tells us that in the community there should be God-appointed leaders who can govern and judge, and they're to have certain qualifications. The men that Moses appoints, they're to be wise and to be understanding. They're supposed to have experience, and they have to be committed to the promotion of righteousness. They're to care for the people and to provide guidance to them. They're to care for the aliens, the foreigners, verse 16. They're not to show any prejudice or partiality. And this is a glimpse of how it should be in the church as well. In the New Testament, there are instructions given to the church for the governance of the church. There are elders who are charged to care for the members of the church through teaching and preaching, through counsel and prayer and discipline. This is the role of the elders. In our church, it's, it's Michael and Sammy and Jeff and uh, myself and, Lord willing, Pastor John in the near future. And what is our responsibility? It's our job to lovingly care for the members of the church. And I will tell you that we are flawed and weak men. But God has appointed us to this role, and we want to be faithful in carrying out the responsibilities that we've been called to by the Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And one day we're going to give an account for how we have cared for this church. And if you're a member, I want to ask you to pray for us regularly because we need your prayers. And if you're a member, we ask that you engage with us in a way that recognizes the heavy burden we have in leading the church. And this sounds really self-serving, um, but when I say that, I say it with uh, hopefully uh, some humility. Because when we say that we need your help, when we say that we need your, your um, recognition of what we do, it means that we can't do it on our own. It means that we cannot carry out this weight on our own. We need your support. We need your help. It's fine that you criticize us. But are you doing it in a way that builds up the church? There are so many criticisms that we hear. So many. And that's fine. That's what we've been called to. That's our, we signed up for that. But work with us in a way so that we can all honor God together. That's our second point and our final points. The basis of this command So our passage begins with Moses. He recounts the promise that God made to the Israelites. Listen to this, the beginning of the passage. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. 
May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you and has promised you. Now, this is in reference to the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15. Do you remember that? The Abrahamic covenant. God tells Abraham that his descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. Countless. And this is the promise that Moses refers to when he reminds the Israelites of why they are the way they are. He's reminding the the people of God that your God keeps his promises. And just as he's fulfilled the, the covenant that he made to Abraham, and just as he continues to fulfill that promise, he will also fulfill his promise that they will one day enter the promised land. And this is Moses' basis for the structure of community, for the delegation of tasks. This passage is not ultimately about organization for the sake of efficiency. It's not for the sake of order and structure that the leaders are to be appointed. This is not the ultimate end of this passage. And it wasn't even that Moses himself couldn't handle the responsibilities of governing the people, even though on a very practical level, that was necessary. The ultimate purpose why the community is organized the way that it is, is for the good of the people. God is using something as mundane as delegation to bring his people to the promised land. And this is the reason why God has given us a community community that we can live in, where we can live under the care of leaders that God has appointed over us. It's because there is coming a day when we will finally reach our home, when we will step into that promised land, when we will live in the presence of our God forever. And this is a promise that's certain. We can stake our lives on this because God keeps his promises. God is a covenant maker and God is a covenant keeper. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that we live under a new covenant. This is a better covenant that guarantees that we will be God's people and he will be our God. God has established a covenant with us. He has carried it out. And this is what we live under. The covenant is for our sake. If you're familiar with the story, and we'll we'll recount it in the coming months and years, um, if you're familiar with the story of the Israelites, you might know that the, the Israelites, they're constantly rebellious. They're always forgetful of the provision of God. They're always complaining. And this is us as well. You and I are so ignorant of the goodness of God toward us. You and I are so forgetful of who he is and we grumble and we complain and we sin and sin and sin just like the Israelites. And what does God say to that? God says to us, you're still my people. These are my people. I will make a promise to them to be their God and save them from their sins. I will establish my covenant with them. And like the Israelites, we were enslaved and doomed to death. Like the Israelites, we were rescued. Like the Israelites, we are bound for the promised lands. 
we were enslaved to our sin. Sin is our addiction to control of our own lives, our ignorance of the holy God, our insistence that our preferences and our opinions matter more than the righteousness of God. We were, we were enslaved to that. And yet we were rescued. God chose us before the foundation of the world. He opened our eyes to our condition. John said this beautifully. Um, God grants repentance to the Gentiles. And he gave us a way of escape from the consequences of our sin. And because of that, we are bound for the promised land, just as the Israelites are. And this is possible because Jesus Christ identified with us. On the cross, Jesus took on the sin that we were enslaved to. On the cross, Jesus received the penalty for our sins. And he gave us his own righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. Because God keeps his covenants, he sets his love upon us. And when we realize that, we can know that he really does treat us with kindness, that he really has been good to us, and he will be good to us, and he's always going to be good to us. And that includes every situation and circumstance that you're in right now. God puts us in a certain place, in a certain time, with a specific group of people, and for most of us here, it means that God has placed us at Indelible Grace Church in the middle of a pandemic with the group of people that you're with, whether or not you like them. And God says, that's the community that you belong to. Live in that community. Be faithful in that community. Serve me by serving others in that community. He calls us to this for our good. Do you know what it means to live under co- in the covenant, under the covenants? It means that everything that we will ever need is ours. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, there is the covenant. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his own son because he was faithful to the covenant that he made to his people. And if he would do that for us, if he would do that for us, would we not receive everything that comes from his hand, whether they are good or seemingly bad. He'll never withhold from us what we need. He'll always give us the things that we do. This includes our leaders. This includes our community. And this is what this passage speaks of. We are the people of God, and God will never do his people wrong. Will you pray with me? Father, what a humbling thing it is to reflect on our own rebellion, on our own sin, and to know that you still pursue us. You still call us to yourself. You still give us others to live amongst. And I pray that we would not take take uh, for granted our community, that we would not take for granted those that we um, live under and live with. God, I pray that our church would be one that glorifies you, I pray that you would humble us so that we could submit to what you've called us to, God. Um, because you are a good God, and we know that you will do good to us through Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.